you do. So if you are a kiddo, uh, you are now dismissed to go upstairs, and you guys are going to be a part of Children's Church this morning. And so, uh, yeah, y'all go on. Not up front, not up front. You're going to go on upstairs. Kiddos, go on, go on. I don't know if the preacher upstairs is quite as long-winded as this one, but we'll, I guess we'll see. So, um, man. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for being a part of, of what this day is. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would flip them open to the book of Psalms. And we're going to go to Psalms 125. And in my Bible, that's, uh, that's like right smack in the middle. So, so Psalms 125 is, 125 is where we are going to be. Um, we've been walking through this collection of Psalms, which is called the Psalms of Ascent, now for about six weeks. Uh, and, and uh, man, it, I don't know for you, but for me, I have enjoyed, I got to preach Psalm 121. I enjoyed studying for this passage, so, so I'm looking forward to preaching it. Uh, but, but these Psalms are just a great way to help us take our eyes and fi- fix them on God, to, to turn upward, to look upward. So, so Psalm 25 is going to be, and this morning, in these five verses, I've got six points. So I, I thought it'd be appropriate to have six points on our 60th. You know, if you turn on Sirius XM, you've got the 60s on channel six. So we're gonna have six points on the 60th. I don't know. I'm sorry, it's my, my poor attempt at trying to be funny. Um, so so here, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, I, the guys that have been helping fill in as pulpit supply in the center and period, the guys at Redeemer have brought with them a practice that I think is, that is really good. And I think it's one that I think I'm going to adopt when I preach, and that's, that's that they stand to read God's word. Uh, they stand to honor it, and that's, that's because we believe that this is the word of God to us. Uh, and, and so I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask that you would stand. I'm going to read Psalm 125. Hopefully I've given you enough time now. Uh, and after I read it, I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll jump into it. So Psalm 25, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you. We thank you for an opportunity to celebrate the work that you have done in this church for 60 years, God. We, we thank you for an opportunity to celebrate the work that you have done in us and that you are continuing to do. And God, that the work that you're doing in this community. God, we thank you for an opportunity to open the word of the Lord and to study it and to hear from it, and in this, to see you. And God, I, I'd ask that that would be the case today. God, I pray as we study these five verses, we would behold you. And God, as we see you, Lord, conform us into the image of who you are. Make us more like you. Spirit of God, help us. Do a work that only you can do. Not, not good preaching, not good music, something that the Spirit of God does. Do that now, God, for, for your glory, And for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you guys standing with me. Uh, I'm not saying we'll do that every Sunday, but that's that's something that I think is is good for us. Psalm 125. Now, when we look at a passage of scripture, 
and we teach one, what we try to do is we try to kind of boil it down. What is the author wanting to communicate to us? There's a lot of things we're going to see in these five verses, but if we could boil it down to one thing, the one thing that you need to take home, the one thing that you need to hear today, I think it's this. I think these five verses tell us this, the main point, those who trust in the Lord have peace. Those who trust in the Lord have peace. Now, I've got six kind of observations that we're going to pull from this, uh, but all of them boil down to this idea of trusting in God and having peace. So the first reason that we have peace is this. The first reason we have peace is because of the object of our faith. Look back with me to verse one. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now, the first important, important word that we walk to in this is the word trust. Now, I would have loved to have all the kiddos down here and just say, hey, kids, can you guys define trust for us? I think they would probably give us some good and hilarious definitions, but we don't have time. So, so what does it mean to trust? A bunch of adults in this room, you could probably kind of summarize that, summarize that and, and come up with the definition. But what I did was I took that word and I did a, a word study on it. And I said, how else in the Old Testament is that word translated? And so this is how it's translated. It's translated as to be confident or to be secure or unsuspecting. It's translated as to rest or depend and rely. So, so that's some different ways. So you trust in something that you're confident is true or good. So as a, as a farmer, uh, there's a big push in the farming world right now for regenerative and organic agriculture. Why? Why is that push there? It's because some scientists did some study that, and somebody relied on what his science was. They depended on what he had to say, and they're confident that what his science said was true. And because they're confident in it, they believe it. They believe that, yeah, it's good for the environment. It's good for the world. So that's what farming needs to move towards. What about... Uh, trusting in something that makes you feel secure, right? So some people, you don't, you don't feel comf comfortable or safe in your own home. So what do you do? You, you call Brinks and they come and they install a security system, right? Because you know that if somebody breaks in, you can depend on that alarm to trigger and the police will be there and you'll be safe, right? You trust that system. To trust means to rest. I remember when I was in college and I was trying to decide what I was going to be when I grow up, and I just decided not to grow up. Uh, what, what my college pastor said to me was he said, I'll tell you what, Matt, you're kind of waffling between a couple different ways. He said, why don't you not tell anybody? And in your mind, you just make a decision. Just say, I'm going to do this and don't tell anybody. And, and if in three or four days, you're still waffling on it, like, man, should I do this? Should I not do this? He said, then that's probably not the thing you should do. But if you feel at peace, if you feel at rest there, then that's the thing that ultimately at your heart, at the core of what you believe, you believe that to be best for you. And so you can rest in that, right? So those who trust, they have confidence they can rely, they depend, they have rest. But what is it that the people of Israel trusted in? They trusted in the Lord. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's who he is. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clears the guilty. Instead, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see God, the Lord, to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. If you look throughout the rest of the Psalms, some of the way that God is described is he's described as a supplier of strength. He's described as a shield. We see him as holy. He's, he's the Lord who is a helper and he's a refuge. But here in verse one, 
Do you know how the Lord is described? He's described as a foundation, as a solid foundation. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. Now, what's Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the, is the mountain in which the city of Jerusalem was built. It was actually built on top of Mount Zion. Now, this collection of Psalms, the, the Psalms of Ascent, they weren't all written at one time. They were written across history and compiled together so that way that the ancient Jews who were making the pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for, for, the, for the feast that they would go to, they, they would use these to help turn their hearts and their minds to kind of tune them to sing praise, right? So that's what these were for. But, but Psalm 125, a lot of commentaries, a, a lot of smarter people think that it was written during the time of like Hezekiah or Nehemiah. So if you remember that, what's going on in that period is, is Israel is actually under, under the, the rule of some wicked people, but Jerusalem's being rebuilt. So, so as, as the Jews would make this, this trip up the mountain, they wouldn't look at Jerusalem and go, man, that's the place. Because Jerusalem has been destroyed. Like it, they've seen it be built and destroyed and be built and destroyed, be built and destroyed. But you know what's left every time? Mount Zion. It's a firm foundation. So, so as the psalmist is making this journey, as these people are making this journey, they see a firm foundation. If you've ever been to the beach, you see those houses that are built up on stilts. So when a hurricane hits, right, the water rushes in. What happens if a car like hits one of those legs? The whole thing collapses, right? So, so, so this is not what Jerusalem, it will fall. It won't stand forever, but Mount Zion will endure so what's the psalmist saying in Psalm 125, 1? Well, he's saying those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. They're secure. They can rest. They can have peace. But it's not because they believe so much about something, but rather it's what they believe in. So I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller and he tells a story of a guy who's, who's falling off a cliff and he looks over and he sees a little short dead branch and he just believes, man, if I grab a hold of that thing, I'll save my life and somebody will come rescue me. But the problem is, is it doesn't matter how much this guy believes, it's a dead branch. And the weight of him falling on that, what happens to the branch when he hits it? It breaks off and he continues to fall. It's not the strength of his faith that saves him. It's the object of his faith that saves him. So church, let me ask you this. What are you trusting in? What are you getting your peace from? We talked this morning in Sunday school about some people that are experiencing some hard things in life. And, and when life gets hard, we tend to say, man, Lord, I trust in you. And Lord, I'm gonna run to you. And God, I know you can save me and I know you can help me. And that's what we should do. But what about when things are good? What about when, when you got a solid retirement, a good job, great health, a good bank account? What about when all in life is peachy keen? What, do you, what helps you sleep at night? Is it your Brinks security system? Is it your bank account? Is it your family? Maybe one way of knowing the answer to that is to ask, what are you most afraid of losing? What if all of a sudden that was taken from you? How would you respond? What, what if somebody took your reputation from you? Or what if all of a sudden the stock market crashed or your health failed you or your family abandoned you or left you? How would you respond? What are you afraid of losing? What are you trusting in? Now here's the beauty of this verse. 
As long as the Lord is sitting on his throne, his people will not be moved. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides how long? It remains how long? Forever. They're stable and secure in him because he is stable and secure. He will not be moved. He will not be overthrown. When the Lord is the solid rock upon which you stand, you see that all other ground is sinking sand. You can walk through all of life with a sense of peace because of your foundation. It's not because you believe in something so strong, but because of what you believe in. It's solid, it's immovable, it's safe. It's the Lord. You can have peace because of your, the object of your faith. Now this leads us to our second point, verse two. You can have peace because of the protection of the Lord. Verse two, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, and we've, we've told the story of what these guys are doing. They're ascending to Jerusalem. And, and I think we probably have done a poor job of painting a picture in your mind if you haven't been to Israel. Jerusalem's actually not the highest mountain. Jeru- Jerusalem is lower than the surrounding mountains. The three mountains, three mountains on the side of Jerusalem are, are actually several hundred feet higher. So if you think about when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he went across to the Mount of Olives, right? And he prayed, and he prayed looking over Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a couple hundred feet below uh, the surrounding mountains, and that would, strategically speaking, make it a very difficult place to attack. Before an enemy could go and attack Jerusalem, they would have to crawl over a mountain and then drop back down in a valley and then climb back up another mountain to get to Jerusalem. So what the psalmist is doing here in verse two is he's using this simile to give us a picture that those who trust in the Lord are surrounded and protected by him just as Jerusalem is surrounded and protected by mountains. But how? How does the Lord protect his people? Now, I don't know about you, when I I think of being protected from something, it carries with it the connotation that like, something bad is coming at me, right? But, But I'm safe, I'm okay, because I got something between me and the bad thing that's, that's saving me. Is that what's meant here? Are those who trust in the Lord safe? Let's just think about the Bible for a minute, right? Let's, let's think about some of the stories in scripture. Let's run to Job. Job was a righteous man. He loved God and walked uprightly before him. What happened to Job? He lost it all. He lost everything, his kids, his health, his well-being, his reputation. He crawled on a pile of ashes. That's what happened to Job. Think about some of God's chosen people. Think about, uh, how about Jacob and Esau back in the book of Genesis? Who, who's Jacob? He's the guy who eventually becomes, his name's changed to Israel. He's one of, he's the way God is going to choose to bring the promised one, right? It's through, through Jacob. But what happens with Jacob and his brother Esau? How, how does that relationship go? Not so well. Esau wanted to kill him, right? So was Jacob safe? What about Jesus? God's own son. Was Jesus safe as he was on the cross dying? Sometimes it seems like the Lord is not protecting his people, doesn't it? One commentator said this, nothing will come into our lives that isn't permitted by God for the good of the person trusting in him and for the glory of God. He will protect you. Look, we we live in a broken world. Tragedy is coming. Brokenness is gonna hit you in the teeth at some point. If Jesus is Lord of your life, 
then you can expect to suffer the exact same things that he did. We can expect to be betrayed, to suffer loss. We can expect to be disappointed, to be falsely accused. And we can expect to possibly even die. Jesus did. Yet in the midst of all of this brokenness, we can have peace because as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. I like to watch uh, movies that are set back in the uh, medieval times. I don't know why I like those, but you get pictures of battles, right? And at the battle on the walls of the city, what's going on? A war is raging, but what happens inside the inner city? Usually that's where the, the women and the children have retreated and they're hiding in a place. And I'm sure there's anxiety and there's nervousness, but there's also a sense of no matter what's going on out there, we're protected by what's going on in here. We've got walls to protect us. We've got people fighting on our behalf. So what does that mean for us? It means that in the middle of the war, you can find peace in the middle of the city because it's surrounded by a good father. When you look at Jesus, did God lose him? No. When you look at Job, did God lose him? No. What, what about Jacob? Did God lose him? The wall that protects us is not our retirement plan or our insurance or our security system or our health or our family. None of those things will last. Your retirement plan is going to run out. You're going to get a surprise bill from that surgery that you had eight months ago that you didn't know was coming, that your insurance isn't going to cover. Your health, health is going to fail you. And for some of us, your family is going to abandon you. All the things on this earth are just temporary. But the Lord, how long does he last? From this time forth and forevermore. So what do we do when the war is raging? Because it's going to rage. The prince of the power of the air is still seeking to still kill and destroy. We're going to face problems. The world we live in is functionally broken. What do we do? Hide behind the wall, wall of peace, knowing that one thing will last forever. You could trust in the sovereign Lord, knowing that he only allows what is good for his people and what glorifies him. When you trust in him, when you rest in his providence, you'll have peace because he promises to protect his people. This brings us to our third point, verse three. You can have peace because God is just. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest they, the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now, verse three on face value may seem a little bit out of place, but really it's, it's built off of verse two. So, so one of the ways that God protects us is through being just. Now, we look at verse three for the scepter of wickedness. What, what's the psalmist talking about here? Remember, if, if Hezekiah was, or, or this was written during the time of Hezekiah or Nehemiah, the, the scepter of wickedness would have been very real to the Israelites. They would have known what it was like to sit under wicked rulers. And they would have, in the midst of their journey, as they traveled, if they weren't huffing and puffing up a mountain like I would be, they would have been reflecting and thinking about God may this scepter of wickedness be removed from us. And the promise of Psalm 125 is that God won't let the wicked reign forever. He sees the injustices that exist and he promises to make all things new. Israel absolutely had to endure some godless leaders. Don't we? Don't we have to sit under the rule and reign of wicked people who are self-centered and self-focused? 
What the psalmist is teaching the Israelites and what he's teaching us is an ideal principle that God will not allow the unrighteous to rule his people forever. How do we know this? Well, from the New Testament, we know that the King of Kings has come and he will come again to set up his eternal kingdom. And with that hope, we are secure. The wicked won't rule forever. Why? Why won't the wicked rule forever? Well, the psalmist tells us, the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And I know a guy, he's a good guy. It's what we would call, man, that's a good guy. He gives his shirt off his back, man, he's a good dude. But my, my friend has a short fuse and he's got a real high moral and ethic standard. And do you know what happens when you cross his moral and ethic standard? The fuse is lit. And what happens when the fuse is lit? Right? He explodes. He gets angry and he reacts with verbal or physical aggressiveness towards another person. He flies off the handle and he rips into them. And in doing that, he's actually joining the other person in their sin against him. So what's being pointed out in verse three is, is God is wise enough to know that we're gonna be tempted to join in wickedness. We're gonna be tempted to join the other person in their wrongdoing. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now God sees his people and God wouldn't be a good God. I, I wouldn't be a good dad if I saw my kids suffering under something, right? That would, be a, that would be a bad dad. That would not be just. God sees his children and he says, I see you suffering. I see you being tempted. And I, it's okay for that to happen. It's gonna happen. It's the world we live in. But I'm not gonna let that temptation crush you or pull you away from me. I'm gonna give you a way to endure it, to stand underneath it. So church, we can take the promise of verse three and we can move forward on this journey of life knowing that God won't let the wicked rule forever. And he's gonna keep his children from falling into the path of the wicked. God's justice can give you peace to move forward. Point number four, you can have peace because of the object of your faith. You can have peace because of God's protection and because of God's justice. And now we'll see you can have peace because God is good. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. The first three verses of this psalm are a confession of trust. But verse four is all of a sudden a prayer of petition. petition. Now, we pray and we often want to know, God, what's your answer to my prayer, right? Did I pray a good one? Am I gonna get a yes today? You know, like, what do we get? Do you know what the answer to prayer in verse four is? Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts? The answer to this prayer is resoundingly, yes. Let me show you why. First is God's character. What is God? If, you, if you've been at church, I grew up, grew up across town at another church, but I remember there'd be pastors who'd come in and they'd say, God is good. And the church would respond? All the time, all the time. There we go, right? So some of you, some of you know that. Some of you are like, man, these people are weird. That's okay, we are weird. Uh, we, we know, we trust God to be good, right? He is good. He's, and he's not just like the good guy who gives you a shirt off his back, right? He's not that kind of good. 
He's, he is goodness personified. He is perfectly good. So it would be contrary to his nature to not do good. So when you say God do good, it's like saying, hey, fish, go swim in water, right? That, that's what a fish does. A fish swims in water. It's like the psalmist is saying, God, you be you, man. You do you. Well, what else is he going to do? He is good. And, and if God is good, and he's supposed to do good to people, what does that mean he has to give people in order to give them goodness? Himself. He is the essence of goodness. So for him to do good to people is to give himself to people. Now, this is where verse four gets problematic. Do good, O Lord, to whom? To those who are good. Well, who's good? Good news. This guy named Jesus comes on a little bit later in the Bible and he gives us an answer. Luke chapter 18, you don't have to flip there. I think we got it on the, on the screen if, if stuff works like it's supposed to. Luke 18, it's a parable of a rich young ruler. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, pause for a minute, make a shameless plug. We started a couple weeks ago on a Sunday school class on evangelism. And in this class, we've been laying the foundation of why we do evangelism. And here in a few weeks, we're going to switch to how, how to, the how to of evangelize people, right? And I don't know about you, but if somebody came up to you and said, hey, what must I do to be saved? What would you do? Man, I'd be like, man, this guy's there. I got a chance of winning one today. Woo, man, this, like, all I got to do is share the gospel and that's it. Man, I'm, I'm woohoo, I would be pumped. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when this guy says, hey, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? How does Jesus respond to him? Does he give him the gospel? No. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus' response is probing at the heart of this rich young ruler. And we'll show you that in a second. Why do you call me good? Who's good? No one is good except God alone. Not a single person. So back to our original question, who does Jesus say is good? No one. Last week, Will took us back to the book of Ephesians. If you've been here for any point in time, you've seen that we, we look throughout lots of places in scripture to see how does the Bible describe us outside of Christ? It says that we're dead. We're sin-sick rebels. We're self-consumed, self-centered, and destined for hell. We are the opposite of good. But who does the rich young ruler recognize Jesus as? He recognized him as good. So, so in Jesus' response, he's saying, why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God is good? What's, what's Jesus doing with his response? He's saying, I'm God. I, I am good. I am the good one. And then do you know how Jesus follows up that point? I don't have the verses up here. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He says, you know what you must do to be saved? He gives him the 10 commandments. He says, hey, honor your father and your mother, no false images, trust the Lord, right? And what does the rich young ruler say back? I've done all that. I'm good. I've checked the box. I go to church. I have good morals. I have good ethics. I am a good person. 
But Jesus' very first response shows him something. No, you're not. So what does Jesus say? Luke 18, 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Friends and family, listen. Salvation does not come from doing good things or being good people or keeping all the commandments. None of that makes you good. Salvation comes from Jesus. Only he is good. When Jesus says, come and follow me, what he's telling the rich young ruler is to recognize that your very best efforts, even all of the law keeping, the rule following that you have done, you know how they measure up? Not good. Not a single person in this room is good or upright in heart. Not one of us. Only Jesus is. Now this, to me, is where Psalm 125 gets crazy. God, do good to those who are good and upright in heart. Let me ask you a question. Have you experienced the goodness of God? We just sang the song, all my life you have been faithful. I will sing of the goodness of God. Have you experienced the goodness of God? How is that even possible? It's possible because God allowed the one who was good to receive all that was bad. Jesus being perfectly good, who lived the life that we should have lived and who died the death that we deserve to die was murdered on a cross. And while he was on that cross, God took all of his wrath towards all of sin for all of time and he poured it on his son. The good teacher who is actually our good God that died the death that we deserve to die. Why? So we could experience the goodness of God. How do we do it though? How do we experience God's goodness? Yeah, there's, there's common grace. All of us, even, even wicked people who never come to church get to experience something called common grace. They get, they get to experience goodness in life because that's who God is, right? But how do we experience the goodness of God? What does Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Come, follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. For Jesus to be Lord of your life, for you to experience the goodness of God is to hide in the shadow of the cross. Because that way, when God looks down, he doesn't see you and your check boxes over here onto the side. No, what does he see? He sees a son who was perfectly good. But do you know why you can even respond that way? That's because God is good. All the time, God is good. So church, let me, let me ask you this. The heart of our sermon, the heart of who this church is, is, is Jesus Lord. Have you recognized that your best efforts aren't good enough and that only, only the blood of the lamb can cover you? Have you left everything to follow him? We just heard Jonah's testimony and, and I asked her a question at the very end and this is one that's really important. Are you willing to go wherever he calls you to do and do whatever he asks you to do? You know what that question reveals? It reveals lordship. It says that guy is the one who I'm gonna live my life according to. The way I heard it said at another, at another church was your life is a check. 
Have you signed the check and left it blank and slid it across the table and said, God, whatever you call me to do, I'm gonna do. Whoever you call me to be, I'm gonna be. Your Lord, I'm not. Like John has said, is, is Jesus in the passenger seat advising you or is Jesus in the driver's seat leading you? Is Christ the Lord of your life? If he's not, do you know what you don't have with God? You don't have peace. But because God poured all of his wrath on his son, you can have peace because God is good. Point number five, you can have peace because God is holy. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Now, just like verse three builds on verse two, verse five builds on verse four. Now, verse four is a gospel reminder for us. It shows us the goodness of God and how we aren't good, yet God was good to us because of Jesus. But verse five also has a call for those who claim Christ as Lord. It's a call for them to live upright and good lives, to be good people, to walk according to their identity in Christ. Here's the warning of verse five. When we live according to God's ways, we experience his blessing. But what about those who turn aside to their crooked ways? What happens to them? Banishment. In Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this passage, he points out that there's a, a general transition that you begin to see in the ungodly. It's that first, even if they're trying to be good per- people, they, they look out and they identify what? A crooked way. And they, they think about that crooked way and then they choose it and they make it their own crooked way. And then they turn aside into them, following their crooked way. He says, one doesn't do this intending to pursue wickedness forever, but as they walk down the path of unrighteousness, they get pulled further in. Of this group of people, what does Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Church, verse five is a warning to remind us that God's holiness is not something to be trifled with. In the book of Leviticus, God calls his people. He says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holiness, for I am holy. The holiness of God demands that those around him be holy. And if you're not, what happens to you? You're led away with the evildoers. Why is that? Why is it that God removes holiness from him? Well, the minute you begin to bring unholiness into holiness, it tarnishes the purity of it. So we used to live in North Carolina and I was working at a church there and I was part of a, it was a mega church. I was a little man on a, on a totem pole uh, and we were, I was at a campus. In our campus, we officed uh, in a uh, work share building. So like you would rent a few cubicles and there would be other businesses and stuff in there. And so in our, uh, in our, um, in our office, across the way, the other cubicles, was the company that hosts all of the national coffee brewing competitions. And they had, they had all the stuff, man. Like, you don't, you don't even know. They had all the stuff. And they would go to these competitions, and they had these thousands of dollars of equipment to grind and, and brew coffee. And then they would come home from them, and they would have just mountains of the world's best coffee, right? People trying to win this title. And so they were going to drink it all. So they came over to us, and they were like, hey, 
there's this stuff back there. We're not going to drink it. You guys help yourselves. And we're like, man, we don't, we don't know what this is. What do we do with this? And so they took us back there. They taught us how to grind coffee. And you would say, okay, I want a cup. And so, so we would take our, our coffee cup. This is a perfect illustration. Thank you for leaving this up here. Uh, we would take our coffee cup and we would pour the water and we would actually weigh how much water goes in there. So that way we could go back and weigh the beans because your ratio of beans to water matters. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I just poured Folgers in the cup, right? So, so we would weigh this out and then you'd start your pour over and you'd pour over a little bit of water and you'd wait for 30 seconds for it to bloom, to let some of the acidic, I'm teaching you guys coffee stuff now. I'm a coffee snob, by the way. So you'd let this bloom and then all of a sudden you'd finish your pour over, but we would time it. You had to have a certain time in which you accomplished your pour so that your coffee tasted as it was supposed to taste. It was amazing. You haven't had coffee if you haven't had coffee like that. It is so good. I love it. But the problem with that coffee was it did what to me? I don't like Folgers anymore, right? It messed me up. And, and you know what is the worst? You know, do you know what is the worst way to ruin coffee? Just a touch of creamer. Man, it is tarnished the second you put it in there, right? You've ruined the whole cup when you all of a sudden add some of that little flavoring stuff. Any, anybody? Yeah? No? Yeah? Okay. That's me. I want my coffee black. Now, what's different between my coffee cup and a little bit of creamer in it that ruins the whole thing and the holiness of God is is the holiness of God can't be tarnished. What happens when sinner, sin enters into the holy place? He destroys it. What happened to the guy who was walking along and saw the Ark of the Covenant starting to fall and reached up to grab it so that it wouldn't fall? What happened to him? He dropped dead immediately. The holiness of God is a fearful thing. It can't be tarnished. But if it's fearful, how does it give us peace? But one of the marks of a true Christian is that they desire holiness. They desire holiness. They want to grow in it because they, you know what they see at the heart of holiness? They see the character of God. They see his goodness, his protection, his stability, his justice. And do you know what all of those things bring about? Peace. So church, let me ask you this. Do you desire holiness? Do you desire to live in a place where evil is led away and purity and righteousness remain? We're celebrating 60 years of this church's existence. And on one hand, I'm sad to say that we have not been a perfectly holy people. There has been unholiness in my own heart. In our own people, that's happened. But as we look forward to the next 60 years, may holiness be a mark of the people of this church. Not a holier than thou attitude. Not one that's, hey, I'm better than you. That's not it. What we want, what we desire is to be a type of people for the light of God to shine in us and through us so that the darkness, the sin of this world doesn't remain. Church, may we hate sin. May it break our hearts. May we fight to kill it. May we fight to be people who fall on our knees in repentance and in faith, trusting in a God of mercy and grace. May we fight to see it 
out of our churches. May we be quick to be people who ask for forgiveness and give forgiveness. May the gospel culture that we desire, may it be real here. What if, what if you desired to live a holy life? How would that change you? How would that change this church? What if, what if we were a holy church? What would that do to our community? How would that change our city? When holiness is present, the peace of God reigns. And this brings us to our last point. You can have peace because of our God of peace. The very last words, the very last phrase of this psalm, peace be upon Israel, is the culmination of it. It starts with trust in the Lord and it ends with peace upon Israel. What is peace? What is it? It's the Hebrew word shalom. Now I was taught that the best definition of shalom is God's people and God's presence and God's place. That's the mission that God is on. He is on a mission from Genesis to Revelation of restoring peace. We look back to Genesis and what did Adam and Eve do? They walked with God in the garden, seeing him face to face, communing with him daily. But what happened? Sin entered the world. They determined that their ways were better, that their, their word was better than God's word. And whenever that happened, what did sin bring, bring into the world? It brought death. But Genesis 3 shows us, as we've read in our, our children's storybook, that God promises to send a serpent crusher, one who's going to restore all things. And on the cross, what does Jesus do? Sin brings in death, and what does Jesus overcome on the cross? Death. He rules, he reigns. And now, God's work isn't done. He is in the process of calling to himself a people. 1 Peter 2.9, who is God's people? You, you, if you're God's people, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why does God have you to be a royal priesthood? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's people have a mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know what that is? That's discipleship. What's our mission? We exist to glorify God by making disciples, by bringing light to darkness, by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of it. That's our mission. And why is it our mission? It's our mission because that's God's mission. That's the work that he is on. That's the thing he is doing. He is on a mission of restoring peace. So, so Psalm 125, it, it points us backwards to Genesis to see what we're supposed to be. It points us forward to the cross, to the work that God has done, but finally it points us to Revelation 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is that? That's God's place. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them. There's God's presence 
and they will be his people. There's God's people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God's people and God's place with God's presence. Shalom. Peace. Friends and family, do you know the peace of God? Not comfort that the world has this, this world has to offer, but the peace of God. What is the foundation of your life? What are you trusting in? Have you trusted in the Lord with all of your heart or are you leaning on your own understanding? When the arrows of the evil one are being shot at you or the brokenness of this world is staring you right in the face, are you safe in the protection of the Almighty? Do you remember that no matter who rules or reigns on this earth, no matter how unjust and impure the systems of the world, no matter what scepter of wickedness exists, our God is just and he will have the final word. Have you experienced the goodness of God in the person of Jesus? Have you been saved? Do you know him to be Lord? Have you left to follow him? Do you desire to walk in holiness because it reflects the character of our God? Church, do you have peace? What rules your hearts and minds? As we look forward, may we be a church whose foundation is built upon our trust in the Lord, who is our protector, who is just, who is good, who is holy, and who is peace. Amen? Those who trust in the Lord have peace. I'm going to invite the music team to come up uh, and they're going to come up and I'm going to pray to close us. And, and as, as I pray, we'll, we'll conclude with a song like we always do. We're going to stand, we're going to sing. And at the end of that song, there's going to be another quick video uh, from Pastor Brian. Um, and that's not the end. Uh, at the end of that, the Tuckers are going to come forward and we'll have an opportunity to vote them in for membership. And then that'll be the end. We'll get to go eat. So music team, come on up. Church, let's pray. Father, we are truly thankful for the work that you have done. We celebrate that you have been our foundation from the beginning, that you have sustained us thus far. And God, we ask that the work that you have done in this church for 60 years would just continue to grow. God, do more than we could ask or imagine. God, may we, the people of liberty, be a people who bring peace who bring you to those around us. May we be a light in the darkness. Father, we believe our best days are in front of us. God, may that be true. May it be true so that your glory is magnified. May it be true for our good. Jesus, we ask this in your holy name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing and celebrate.